This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. 2,000-mile border both separates and joins the United States and Mexico, but that's not the only thing we share with our neighbor to the south. Over the last two generations, our economies, our peoples, and our cultures have been increasingly intertwined. Welcome to 35 West. I'm your host, Richard Miles. And who better to talk about these trends than my guest this morning, Ambassador Jeronimo Gutierrez-Fernandez, a career diplomat in the Mexican Foreign Service, and most recently, the Ambassador of Mexico to the United States from 2017 to 2018. Welcome to the show, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let's talk a little bit about, um, before we launch into sort of policy and grand trends and so on, let's talk about you a little bit, your pre-professional life. You're obviously an expert on the United States, who so spent a lot of time doing that, but where were you born and raised? What did your parents do for a living? How did I, you get into I diplomacy? Was, I was born in Mexico City, spent most of my life in Mexico City with the exception of the times that I've lived abroad, which really means the United States, and I lived for a brief period in France. I went to a Catholic school. I walked for 13 days going to school. It was pretty close from home. What part of Mexico City? In the west. In the west. Yeah, northwest of Mexico City, which is called uh, Cuajimalpa. Actually, when we moved there initially, there was really nothing there. The school was there already, but you could actually see cows around uh, at that time where I lived. Uh, Mexico City has obviously grown a lot and has changed a lot. So I'm a defeño, or a chilango, as they say in Mexico, um, you know, a city boy from Mexico. But however, most, as you mentioned, most of my professional life has been very much linked to the border issues in the United States. And I've spent a good amount of time living in the United States for different reasons. You know, I studied here. I went to a military academy in Indiana, and uh, I was an ambassador here in Washington. So in one way or another, my life has always been uh, linked to the United States. And at what point did you decide, do you remember as a, either a boy or a student that you were attracted to the idea of, of diplomacy or something in international relations? Was it a single moment? The truth, or? Is, the truth is that I didn't ambition myself being a diplomat, to be honest, I'm a, and I'm a trained economist. But I had focused a lot on the policy development process in the United States when I started here. And I really enjoy the way that the political system works in the United States. And I was working at that time, this was around the year 2000, I was working in our Commerce Department when then Foreign Secretary resigned to his position about a year after 9-11. And President Fox called in a new team into the Foreign Service, and I was asked to be in charge of North American relations, uh, something that I very gladly accepted because I enjoy it and also because of its uh, importance to Mexico. Do you remember your first trip to the United States? My first trip to the United States was to L.A. and California. How old were you at the time? Probably I was around five. Five. And my parents uh, took me and my brothers there. Obviously, we we ended up going to Disneyland, uh, which was the thing then as pretty much it is now. And that was probably my first trip to the United States. And since then, I've gotten, again, for different reasons, to a good number of uh, states, maybe 30 of them I've been at one point or another. 
And your parents, what did they do for a living? Were they also my, academics? Or? No. My father was an engineer. He devoted himself to actually selling tractors and then to uh, the family business, which is a petrochemical business back in Mexico. And uh, my mother had a flower shop. They were very uh, far away from you know policy issues to a large extent. So you know both countries very well, obviously. You're, you're born in Mexico. You've spent a lot of time in the United States. And one thing I think that anyone knows about both countries is both countries have changed tremendously in the last certainly two generations, say 40, 50 years. I was just going to mention my first foreign trip was to Mexico City when I was about four. So we, we it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> and uh, to visit my grandparents, my, my mother was Mexican and my grandparents lived there in Mexico City. And I certainly remember what Mexico City was like in the late 60s and early 70s. And then flash forward to you going through Mexico City today and, and the tremendous changes. Looking over the course of, let's say, since the 70s, what do you think are the most important and interesting changes that have happened in Mexico and then in the United States? But let's start with Mexico first. If you compare- since the 60s, basically? Since the late 60s, early well, 70s. I, I, I would say that there are, first, obviously, one of the most important changes has been Mexico's long struggle to become a full-fledged democracy. There is a whole debate, intellectually debate, about when did Mexico actually became a democracy. For some people, this started in 1968 with the student movement. Uh, for others, it was on the year 2000 when the PRI lost for the first time the presidency. And, and yet for others, it's just starting now with uh, you know the, the triumph of President López Obrador in this past election. In my own view, the truth is that Mexico, unlike other Latin American countries, has had a very long democratic transition, and that has huge implications. But I, I can say that we're now, uh, in my view, we're still a very young democracy, but nevertheless a democracy. And I think that's a huge change. I think since you know the early 60s, 70s, up to now, I think that has been one of the most fundamental changes in Mexico. In uh, economic terms, I think that uh, Mexico has gone since the late 60s, I would say different development models. We abandoned what was a import substitution model. Subsequent technocratic governments initiated what are called structural reforms in the late 80s up all the way, I would say, up to now. And then, as you can imagine, where very much there has been an important change. Uh, Mr. López Obrador likes to say that this is a regime change, not a government change. And whether he's right or not, that's all for debate. But I think that there is, again, a discussion about what development model must Mexico take. I think that Mexico is economically and socially better off than we were 30 years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That does not mean that we're far from solving a lot of the issues that need to be addressed socially and economically, even politically. But I think we've come a long way. And as you know, what I think it was uh, Churchill that said that democracy is the worst system of government with the exception of every Everything other, right? right. <laughs> and I think that Mexico is yeah. that. So it takes a lot of time to build a country, especially if, if you're a democracy. Change is somewhat incremental in a democracy. So that's another important thing. And I think that Mexico also has opened it up itself to the world. We have always been a very friendly culture, a very friendly nation. But I think that if you compare Mexico now to other countries and what was you know 30 years ago, you can say that Mexico has become very open worldwide. And I think that's positive. Let's explore that point a little bit. To me, it's fascinating in that I think this has also changed Mexican self-identity. You know, how do Mexicans think about themselves 
with respect to the rest of the world? Because it's, it strikes me that what, as you said, used to be an import substitution-based economy, you know, little profile on the world stage. In small but significant steps, Mexico seems to have a broader identity of itself as a more important country, so to speak, in terms of trade, in terms of maybe budding international influence. Have you seen the same thing in terms of how Mexicans think of themselves today with respect to international affairs, international trade? Well, I think that, yes, I do think and there's some polling to that effect that Mexicans have become much more interested in foreign affairs. And, and again, we've always been a very open country and a very open society in my view. But Mexicans have become a little bit more nuanced about foreign affairs in general, about the world in general. They have traveled abroad. And therefore, you see, in my view, a more, a little bit of a more thorough and comprehensive debate about Mexico's role in the world and Mexicans themselves in the world. As you remember, in the mid-1950s, Octavio Paz wrote a very important book, which is The Labyrinth of Solitude, which sort of, it's a great masterpiece that very much describes the Mexican psyche. I think we probably need for another one because it's been quite some time since someone devoted so much time and effort to really analyze how Mexicans think about themselves. But probably there's a need to do another review of that. But I think that, yes, Mexicans have changed. And especially if you look at their important geographical differences. People in the north of Mexico, my impression is that they tend to be much more intertwined, for example, with the United States. And that's perhaps only natural that people on the south of Mexico. And therefore, they have a, a little bit different views about themselves in the world. But yeah, that's something that needs to be probably, again, reassessed. It's really impossible to talk about Mexico's view of itself in the world without talking about the United States, of course, because you, as you well know better than most people, the United States and Mexico have a complicated historical relationship, to say the least. We're once literally enemies, but uh, over time and certainly in the last couple of decades are very, very intertwined on many, many different levels. Some people would argue that a lot of this is due to NAFTA, right, the increased trading relationship and investment that's occurred in the last 20 years. Others, for instance, I, I believe that our security relationship over the last 10 years and 15 years has had a lot to do with this intertwining of the two governments. How do you think the relationship has changed between the two countries uh, for, for better or for worse? I'm an optimist about the U.S.-Mexico relationship in general. I don't idealize the relationship, but I do think that if people are just a little bit careful at looking at the relationship on both sides, they will f very quickly figure out that Mexico and the United States essentially have a lot of shared interest and that our interests as nations largely converge. Not on everything, but they largely converge. I think that the U.S.-Mexico relationship has had three periods, and maybe we're in the beginning of a fourth one. And I don't want to get too much into history, but very briefly, I think that from our own independence and until uh, probably, um, you know, the whole 19th century and probably to the Second World War, the relationship was largely confrontational between Mexico and the United States, or at least between their governments. It's marked by very specific historic events that were largely traumatic for Mexico, uh, a war that has been described as unjust even by Americans. You know, you have Pancho's Villas uh, raid into Colombo's New Mexico, and then you have, you know, Pershing 
punitive expedition. You have the expropriation of U.S. assets on oil companies. You have the intervention of the United States during the Mexican Revolution. So it wasn't an easy relationship. You have, you know, all the everything that happened with Texas. It was largely confrontational with, I would say, few exceptions. I think the Second World War allowed us to see each other different. The need of the United States to secure raw materials for the war effort and also the need to secure labor changed things. So pretty much from the Second World War all the way up to NAFTA in the 90s, I say that there was an inflection point. And it's a period in which the United States and Mexico began to see each other differently as before. And also, if you look at it close, and Mexico was very big. People don't know about this, but Mexico was actually, you know, Mexico in 1942 de declared the war against the Axis powers and fought along the sides of the United States in the Pacific theater. And people don't often know that there were a lot of Mexicans that actually enrolled in the U.S. Army during the Second World War and fought in, uh, you know, from the beaches of Normandy to the hills of Anzio in Italy. So that changed a lot. Then we have the Cold War. And the Cold War was sort of described as a tacit agreement between Mexico and the United States in which the United States uh, uh, sort of allow Mexico to toy around with the Latin American left. And Mexico, you know, did a little bit of that, but actually kept the Latin American left at arm's length, really. And that was sort of an equilibrium, right? And I think that there's a truth to that. And this period was also described as, you know, we were distant neighbors. We had a lot going, but we knew relatively little of each other. And that suddenly changes in the 90s. A new technocratic government in Mexico decides to embark the country in a series of reform, one of which is a full-fledged trade agreement with the United States and then Canada. And that fundamentally changed the relationship. Since then, I would say that the trend has been very positive with ups and downs naturally and challenges and problems almost, I would say, every single year there's one. But the trend line since then has been, I would say, pretty good. And then I have to say it, then you, you have a huge disruption in the relationship with the beginning of President Trump administration. And that's pretty much where we are. And I think that it hasn't been easy. The past you know, two, three years have not been easy on the relationship. But I think that it has been kept within reasonable margins by both sides so far. And my hypothesis is that if we overcome this period, we're actually going to have a pretty much uh, a much more mature relationship going forward. Interesting point you make. And one thing that really surprised me during the Mexican presidential election was I assumed that the issue of President Trump, the issue of migration, the issue of the relationship would be a big point of debate or discussion in the Mexican presidential election. And it didn't come up very much at all. It seems like it was almost exclusively focused on corruption and violence. With a few mentions of President Trump, but it, it never became a, an overarching issue on which either uh, any of the candidates campaigned. This to me, and maybe I'm just being naively optimistic, <laughs> this to me signaled that Mexicans, one, don't define themselves just in relation to the United States. And number two, that the relationship may have reached a maturity point to where regardless of who is in office, there are enough common interests to keep it going so that I, Mexicans can afford, so to speak, to not ignore but 
not I, overreact to a U.S. presidential election. I think you're absolutely right. I think that Mexicans have become more nuanced about the relationship, and hopefully Americans the same. And I think that the point you make is the, is the appropriate one. I think there's enough people on each side that understand that we have a lot at stake in this relationship and that it's important to take care of it and that we are much more realistic that it involves challenges and problems, uh, again, almost on a daily basis, but the shared interests outweigh the difficulties and the differences that we have. When I was coming here and the last conversation I had with then President Peña before coming here, we were discussing, and mind you, this was a very difficult time in the relationship. And I said, and I said something that I deeply believe. I said, Mr. President, and I think that the Mexicans want two things of you or of, of us in the relationship. And one is don't let yourself be pushed, but go and fix this because this is important for us. And I think that that describes in a very, you know, blunt way uh, what we tried to do during the past years. And to a large extent, I think that Mr. Lopez Obrador and his government have done pretty much the same thing. There are important differences, but they know that you can you know, that that both sides would lose if we really get into a nasty confrontation. We have talked about a lot of the converging similarities between the two countries, but of course there still remain significant differences, cultural differences, social differences, political differences. As the ambassador of Mexico to the United States, what is the one thing that you wish Mexicans understood better about American cultures and society and then vice versa? What is the one thing you wish Americans understood better about Mexican culture and, and That's system. a very good question. I don't know whether I can pinpoint any one single issue, perhaps a couple. Or a category, case, maybe. Yeah, yeah, category. But I think one of the things that people need to understand in Mexico is, you know, the United States project itself towards the rest of the world as a result, not of the single will of the president of the United States, who's, you know, arguably the most powerful person in the world, but as a result of a balance of interest between branches of government, between the business sector, between state governments. And, and that's how pretty much in my view, especially in the relationship with Mexico, and therefore that you cannot generalize it's not very easy or very appropriate to just say, oh, the United States is this or the United States is that. It's a very complex puzzle in a sense. And therefore, I, I think that's one of the important things that need to be understood. On the other side, I would say that the one thing that I would certainly like more Americans to understand is that Mexicos are hardworking people, that we're honest people, that we have our share of problems, but that we strive every single day to have a better country, that uh, Mexico is not obviously full of drug traffickers. We do have a strong challenge on confronting organized crime, but we, you know, we have done it, I think, to the best of our ability over the past 20 years, but that Mexicans in general are good, hardworking people, just like your average folks here. And that what they want is to have, you know, food on their tables for their family, have, an, if possible, a nice vacation, and that's it. And that we're not in any way a threat. I was recently struck 
by a Pew Hispanic Research uh, Center poll that showed that 56% of Mexicans saw the United States as a threat. It came out just a few days, and that worried me a bit. We don't know yet, I think, what has been the toll of the past three years in terms of the perceptions, and I emphasize perceptions on the relationship, but I think it's important that we worked uh, on both sides to make sure that we know who we really are. One thing you said earlier, Mr. Ambassador, about there's a more nuanced understanding and not looking at the United States as monolithic. I thought one very interesting response, once both Mexico and Canada realized that President Trump was serious about renegotiating NAFTA, right? Because I think most of us in the policy community didn't really take mm-hmm. that seriously. Once it was clear that that was going to happen, some interesting things happened in that uh, both the Canadian um, – I think the Canadians started first and Mexican government followed suit. Instead of concentrating all of their efforts just in Washington, they went to the state capitals and they started going state by state and convincing these states uh, of – the importance of Mexican trade or or Canadian trade with that state. Because in the American system, right, a a governor and a state delegation has a lot of weight and they can convince and work on the White House on on these trade deals. So I thought that was, you know, something a a great strategy. Unfortunately, it probably came too late because I think everyone assumed that NAFTA would never go away or never be renegotiated like it has been. I think we made a mistake. I think a lot of people thought that NAFTA was untouchable. And that was a mistake, not only because of NAFTA itself, because we are now longer in the roaring 90s as Siglis used to say. I think there is somewhat of a pendulum going on and there's concern. And I think, uh, you know, free trade uh, has not delivered uh, equally to everybody in each country. And therefore, there's, uh, to some extent, there's a backslash. And I think that what we leave during the NAFTA renegotiation is a bit of that. And yes, we did go to the states. I'll use two examples because I think it's important. I was reading a Kansas City Star article this morning that talked about how people there in Missouri want USMCA to be approved immediately because it's very important because Mexico buys billions of dollars worth of corn and soybeans and other agricultural products from that state. And let's go to Texas, for example, and look at what Mexico buys in terms of natural gas. We buy a lot of the natural gas that it's now being produced through fracking and other mechanisms in Texas. So a lot of jobs depend, a lot of employment positions, like in Mexico, depend on our trade. And therefore, it was importantly to go to the ground level and talk about these things. And it's interesting, some of that same polling shows that although a lot of farmers, for instance, still support Trump, they are very unhappy about the failure of the USMCA to go through or be approved. So it it shows that they understand what's at stake here. Um, And even though that might not necessarily switch their vote for Trump, they would be delighted (laughs) if it could get through Congress I use a phrase that I would, you know, with all due respect, that I would tell the Trump administration and everybody with respect to trade between Mexico and the United States and what has happened over the past three years, uh, basically with the renegotiation of NAFTA and now USMCA. Shake it, but don't break it. It's important. Now let's get engaged in a little bit of of predicting the future here. We're less than a year out from the next presidential election. And at this point, you know, the polls are still relatively close where a re-election of President Trump is by no means um, off the table. But then again, no no means is it assured. What do you think if there is a second Trump term 
are his priorities going to change with respect to Mexico or are we going to have a different set of demands or objectives or do you think it's pretty much going to go the same way? And if a Democrat occupies the White House, First of what all, kind of policy projections? Yeah, I, you know, I tend to think that we have to be careful as Mexicans about, you know, meddling in any way in the, you know, internal politics of the United States, especially during an election cycle. One thing is, you know, advocating for our own interests as we openly do and we should continue to do. But uh, getting, as we call it, in between the legs of the horses during an election year here in the States is, is, I don't think it's wise, number one. Number two, in my view, there's not any evidence whatsoever that Mexico has fared better either with Democrats or Republicans. And I think, you know, if you go historically, there have been, you know, good times for the relationship with Democrats and there has been good time with the for the relationship with Republicans. I'm sure everybody has its own preference and I'll keep mine quiet. But I think there's no, I mean, literally there's no evidence that would point that, you know, Mexico has fared better with either one of the two parties. And I think that's important to keep in mind. On the present context, I would say one of the things that the past three years, the relationship has been under a lot of stress with the Trump administration. But again, we've managed, I think, to be at least careful enough to not have it seriously derailed by both sides. And in that sense, there's sort of some knowledge, even present the new AMLO administration and the president, you know what they say, it's always good to know already who are you dealing with. And I think that there's a benefit to that. What I do think is that in the future, in the near future, hopefully we'll get trade out of the table. We'll, you know, we'll have a new trade agreement to govern our trade and investment relationships, hopefully by next year. And as we speak, there are negotiations going uh, at the hill and between the governments. But I think that we still have two or three important pending issues. Assuming that we manage to get the trade deal done, I think we need to work better on security cooperation. I think there's frustration on the part of the U.S. administration about what is going on in terms of in Mexico in terms of security, and I and and I think that it's fundamental that we continue to have a very honest, transparent and thorough cooperation on security because there's no way the U.S. or Mexico can solve many of the shared security challenges that we have if we don't work with one another. And I think that's something that you'll see in the future. Also, we have not formally and thoroughly addressed the migration phenomenon. I think that there's a need to have a some form of regional coordination mechanisms to deal with refugees and asylum in the region all the way from Central America to Mexico. And we don't have that yet in place. And I think that's important to work there. And hopefully, although that has been going for the past decades, actually, Hopefully we can address in a different way migration. I think that if, you know, if the U.S. does embark in immigration reform and Mexico, uh, this is something that the U.S. must determine how to deal with its own migration, immigration situation. But we're so linked that working together to address some of the issues that the migration debate involves, I think it would be useful. And I think we'll see more on that in the future. And finally, there's a very complex geopolitical scenario right now worldwide. Wherever you turn a stone, you'll see there are problems worldwide. And you see a lot of turmoil right now in Latin America. 
the Middle East continues to be under a lot of uh, stress. Changes in the European Union and the North Atlantic uh, Organization and Alliance, which has been the backbone of U.S.-European uh, relationships. And then you have a resurgent China. Wherever you look, there's changes going on. And I think that geopolitically, it's going to be interesting how our countries are going to manage different scenarios there. My own view is that given the difficulties that you see worldwide, we have a lot of good things going in North America. No? Uh, and we should be thankful for that because uh, when you look around and in spite of our differences and the challenges that we do face, North America is a, a pretty good place to be right now, meaning Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And that, that is actually the one thing we know is not going to change. We are going to remain neighbors no matter what. If, if that changes, then <laughs> we're really 10 million talking. Years I, I don't know. What, yeah, drift, I, but, I uh, agree completely. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, thank you for your service to your country during a challenging time in the, the relationship. But I think, uh, as you said, we've come out on the other end of that. Uh, we're still in good shape, I think. Um, I'm optimistic. I hope to have you back on the show at some point. It'll be my pleasure, Richard. It's always good to be here at CSIS and especially with you on the on this podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.